Well, it's wonderful to be together this evening, specifically to celebrate the Lord's table, to remember our Lord's death as He commanded us to do on the night in which He was crucified. And uh, this is a service that I always greatly anticipate. It's a joy to think about our Christ and what He suffered on our behalf and the fact that His sufferings were complete for us, that salvation was accomplished in its entirety in the work that Christ did, and to prepare our hearts to receive the elements and remembering the death of Christ. Now, we're going to be looking tonight at Galatians chapter 1. In verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5. This is the introduction, of course, to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in this introduction, he packs a statement upon statement of gospel truth. And as we prepare to take the elements and remembrance of Christ's death, of the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, I trust that this passage will uh, strengthen our, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and cause us to rejoice in the wonderful work of salvation that He accomplished. Let's read the passage here, Galatians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What we find in the book of Galatians is that distortion of the gospel disturbs souls. In chapter 1, verse 7 Paul, as he gets into the body of this letter, says regarding a different gospel that's being preached among the Galatians, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so this is why he's writing the letter. The gospel of Christ has been distorted and souls have been troubled or stirred up because of a foreign element that has come in and disturbed the peace and rest that is found in Christ alone. The main things that are facing the Galatians, and this is going to be important as we look at what he says in the introduction, the Galatians have been disturbed by a questioning of apostolic authority by a questioning of Paul's authority to define and preach the gospel, and by human additions to the gospel. In other words, yes, Christ, but also. Yes, Christ, but also. 
And so as Paul prepares to address these critical matters, these things that are disturbing the souls of the Galatian believers, he gives us a compact statement of gospel truth. And that will be what we look at this evening. Before we get into the passage, I just want to take a moment to remind us of communion and the significance of it. This is a time that we rejoice in what Christ accomplished by shedding his blood on the cross. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is clear that communion also gives believers the opportunity to examine themselves. And that self-examination and preparation for taking the elements involves allowing God to search our hearts. It's an examination based on the truth of God's Word, of who God is. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 139, 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so as we search our hearts, allow God to search our hearts and examine ourselves before the Lord under the authority of the Word of God, it's important that we confess any known sin and pursue reconciliation with others where we are able. But it's also important to examine our perspective of the gospel itself because we still live in the flesh and we have the influence of the world and the devil around us, it is easy for us to subtly shift away from critical gospel truth and important gospel foundations. It's possible for us subtly to redefine the gospel in terms consistent with our personal feelings instead of the apostolic testimony And the result of that subtle shift can be a false security for yourself and others with no objective basis. In other words, if we think of the gospel simply in terms of facts that have to be agreed to and nothing else, if we don't understand the apostolic testimony of the need to turn to Christ and faith and repentance then we can go back to a prayer and think, well, that is what saved me, even though I'm living a life that is in complete contradiction to who Christ is. We can subtly redefine the gospel in terms consistent with our personal feelings instead of apostolic testimony. Another area where we can subtly shift away from the gospel and where times like these are so important uh, for us to rejoice in the truth of what God has done and, and to uh, rid out the wrong thinking that could disturb our own soul. You can pursue sanctification through external conformity and behavior modification instead of through your union with Christ and the strength of his power. In other words, yes, we need to grow. We we are called to grow. It's the fruit of repentance that we grow in Christ. But if sanctification is defined simply by what I do or do not do or what I start doing and stop doing in my flesh, 
by my own strength, then I'm moving away from the gospel foundations and I'm not understanding the essential aspect of union with Christ, that it's my union with Christ that strengthens me to become like Jesus Christ. And in fact, this was something that was taking place in the Galatian church. In chapter 5, in verse 13, as Paul is encouraging the Galatian believers with the freedom that they have in Christ to live for Christ and to serve one another, he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. One of the evidences of pursuing sanctification through external conformity and behavior modification is that it creates division like that. You start biting and devouring. In fact, in chapter 6, And again in verse 13, as Paul is wrapping up the epistle, he gives one final warning to those that were troubling the Galatians and distorting the gospel. He says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his point is that what was taking place in the the Galatian church is that there were were these external requirements and and external uh, behaviors that were being required, but it was for the purpose that those requiring them would boast, and it created division and distorted the gospel. These are subtle shifts. These are things that we have to be diligent as we examine our own lives and our pursuit of Christ. And it raises a question, well, how do we know if, su- if those shifts have occurred in our own thinking? And the answer is not complicated. The answer is not complicated. We simply go back to the foundational truths of the gospel, and this is what Paul does every time that he writes a church and to correct their thinking. He he roots the instruction in the foundations of the gospel, the foundational truths, truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these five verses this evening in preparation for the Lord's table, The theme that we'll consider tonight is that clarifying the gospel restores stability in Christ. Clarifying the gospel restores stability in Christ. Remember verse 7, that there are some who had come in and troubled the Galatians, stirred them up, disturbed them by distorting the gospel of Christ. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at the basics of the gospel. The basics of the gospel. Paul writes, 
and introduces the letter saying, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. What are the basics of the gospel? Well, as Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he says he has not been appointed as an apostle by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And, and in that statement, identifying from whom he received his commission, Jesus Christ and God the Father, he identifies the Father and the Son through their work, the work that God the Father did in raising Christ from the dead. And so in that statement, you have a, a compact uh, statement of the truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. To be raised from the dead means that he was dead, that he, was, he died and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the first basic of the gospel is very simply that Christ accomplished salvation. Christ accomplished salvation in the historical events of his life and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Salvation accomplished fully and completely in Christ, in his work, in his righteous life, and his free offering of himself for our sins. Paul summarizes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, where he writes, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The work of Christ living, dying, being buried, and raised again, being sin for us so that in him we would be called and counted righteous before God. That work was entirely and completely accomplished in the person of Christ. It's done. When he said it was finished, it was finished. And he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. There, there is nothing left to be done for our salvation. It has been fully accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that's a critical aspect that Paul will unfold throughout the gospel or throughout the epistle of Galatians. He'll actually argue that if anyone tries to add anything to the sufficiency of Christ, then Christ becomes a minister of sin. And what his point is, is that if, if you claim to believe in Christ, but you still have to add something to what Christ has done, then you're, then you're saying that Christ's work is not sufficient and, and Christ, Christ's righteousness is not complete. And this is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does in, in its description of salvation when it says that, that you have to add works 
It denies the full accomplishment of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. It denies the full accomplishment of salvation. No, Christ accomplished everything when he lived, died, was buried, and rose again. Salvation is accomplished in Christ. The second basic of the gospel that we find here is in Paul himself, as he introduces himself, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Christ accomplished salvation in the historical events of his life and the crucifixion and resurrection. And second, the apostle's announcement The apostle's announcement of the risen Christ is the final authoritative statement of the gospel. The apostles, the apostles are Christ's authoritative, revelatory agents to declare the gospel, to explain the significance of salvation, which is what they do in the inspired epistles that we have in our scriptures. But the apostles' announcement of the risen Christ, their preaching of Christ, their explaining of Christ, that is the final authoritative statement of the gospel. And again, what we find in Galatians, there are people that had come in to attack the authority of the apostles' teaching. And so Paul is going to, re- to establish his authority by the fact that he received the gospel from God himself. Look at verse 11 in chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was unique in his office. The apostles are the 12 plus Paul, and Paul was uniquely appointed by Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, as one born out of season, but nonetheless as an apostle, as a man uniquely appointed for the proclamation and the explanation of the gospel, and he was received it directly by revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what we have in the scriptures, as the apostles preach Christ and explain Christ, is the final authoritative statement of the gospel. There is no other book coming. There's not going going to be another book in the Bible. There's nothing that can be added to what has been stated in the Scriptures. Now, in contrast to that, in contrast to that truth that the Apostles' announcement is the final authoritative statement of the Gospel, again, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Apostles were under the authority of the Church, I'm just stating this so that we understand the contrast to what Scripture teaches as put forth by a false religion that is predominant in our area. And so the church, therefore, in the Roman Catholic doctrine, wrote the Bible. And because the church wrote the Bible, the church can supplement the Bible. 
Revelation is not closed. Tradition and Scripture are on equal footing, which means that tradition supersedes Scripture. But because the apostles were the revelatory agents, the authoritative revelatory agents of Christ, and because there were certain marks of an apostle that only those men appointed by Christ fulfilled, ultimately the rejection of the final authoritative statement of the apostles is a rejection of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go back to the basics for the stability of our souls to understand that we have everything we need in this blessed book, the Holy Bible of God. That's all. It's sufficient, it's closed, it's final. It gives us the final statement of the Gospel. Another contrast that we just need to recognize because again, it's, it's easy to look outside and we should We need to point out error, but we also need to recognize our own subtle temptations. It can be easy for personal senses and revelation, personal certainty about spiritual things apart from faith grounded in Christ to to tempt us away from the certainties of the Scripture, This kind of thinking, this kind of deception of a personal certainty about spiritual things, a personal certainty that's found in oneself and one's experiences and, and that's separate from the faith grounded in Christ as proclaimed by the apostles, that is deception. And that kind of thinking is institutionalized in the charismatic movement that views personal experience as king. But it can also be present anytime we come to the Scriptures. And because perhaps the Scriptures make us uncomfortable, we adjust apostolic teaching to fit personal preferences. That's a denial of the final authoritative word of the apostles concerning the Gospel. And so we look to the foundations, the basics to reground ourselves and our souls in, in the truth of the gospel. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, if you remember in that passage, he's talking about the experience that he had seeing the transfigured Christ in all of his glory. Now that was a valid experience. It was an important experience for the apostles and understanding who Christ was. But even with that, with that valid experience that is recorded for us in Scripture, in contrast to that, Peter writes this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed more fully confirmed that what he even experienced on that mountain when he saw the transfigured Christ. He says, we have the word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God 
is our certainty. And the apostles' announcement of the risen Christ, that is the final authoritative statement of the gospel. We stake our eternity in it. What a blessing it is that we don't have to try to define the gospel in our own terms. We don't have to redefine. We don't have to add. It's all here. It's all in the Word of God. We've considered the accomplishment of salvation, the announcement of salvation, but the third basic of the gospel is the application of salvation. Salvation is applied by grace through faith. Salvation is applied by grace through faith. Christ accomplished salvation in the work that he did in real time when he lived, when he died, when he was buried, and when he was raised again. It was all completed. The work was done for all time. It was announced and explained by the apostles, but salvation is applied individually by grace alone through faith. Paul writes, as in his greeting, he's writing to all the brothers, verse 2, writing to all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, who, who are the churches? What kind of people make up the churches? Well, in verse 6, as he begins the body of his letter, and it's one of the sharpest beginnings in all of the epistles, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But even in the sharp beginning of the, of, of the body, he recognizes that the churches, the people that have come to Christ and constitute these churches, his assumption is that they indeed have been called by the grace and in the grace of Jesus Christ. Salvation is applied by grace alone through faith. And we have such a wonderful statement of this in the next book, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, where Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is applied. Salvation is applied by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. And so as Paul addresses this church that needs apostolic teaching, he does so knowing that the fullness of salvation accomplished in Christ has been applied to many of those that he is addressing. The fullness of Christ's work is theirs by grace, and he's seeking to establish their hearts in that work. So the basics of the gospel that we see 
starting out or that Christ accomplished salvation. The apostles' announcement is the final authoritative statement of the gospel and that salvation is applied by grace through faith. The accomplishment, the announcement, and the application of the gospel. In verses 3 through 5, we move to see the abundance of the gospel. The abundance of the gospel. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What do we see packed in these statements concerning the abundance of the gospel as Paul expands from the, from the basics of, of the gospel to the wonders that we have in Christ? Well, in verse 3, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, we see that infinite blessing pours out from the gospel. The first aspect of the abundance of the gospel is that infinite blessing pours out from the gospel. Grace and peace to you. And what's the source of that grace and peace? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's inexhaustible, it's infinite grace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, grace is the sphere in which believers exist. When we're saved by grace, we're taken out of the, out of the kingdom of darkness and we're moved to the kingdom of the beloved Son and we, we exist in a, in a sphere, a spiritual sphere of of grace. That's the atmosphere in which we live is grace upon grace upon grace. It's the sphere in which we live and it's the spiritual supply as well for our time of need. Turn over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I, I love how the writer of Hebrews sets up our need for grace our constant need for grace that is fulfilled in what Christ has done for us as our great high priest. At the end of Hebrews chapter 2, as he wraps up his description of Christ taking on flesh to deliver us from the devil, from the fear of death, he says, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So when you're tempted, when you're tempted by sin, do you need help? Well, the writer here says that Christ is able to help you. He's able to help you. In chapters 3 and 4, which we won't go through, I just want to point out what he's doing. He's exalting Christ as superior to Moses. In other words, don't go, don't go to the law for your help. Go to Christ. And as he wraps up that argument, 
turn to the end of chapter 4, to a familiar portion of Scripture. This is how he wraps that argument up. Remember, he started by promising that that Christ, establishing that Christ could help us when we're being tempted. And so verse 14, Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He established that Christ is able to help us in our time of need. And he concludes that section by pointing out that it is through Christ, through our great high priest, that we have direct access to the throne of grace. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the throne of grace in the name of Jesus Christ. And why do we go to the throne of grace? Middle of verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Grace is the sphere in which we exist, and it is grace that is our spiritual supply for our time of need. Our lives are surrounded by the grace of God, and we have access to the throne of grace to get grace upon grace when we need help. And God responds mercifully to us, not, not on, not on our own merits. We deserve nothing. It goes back to the basics of the gospel. The abundance of the gospel is rooted in the basics of the gospel. It's because Christ accomplished all of salvation. That every time we need grace, all the time we have access to the throne of grace on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We have a high priest. And it's through our high priest that we come again and again and again and again to receive the infinite supply of grace that is our spiritual supply for whatever spiritual need we have whenever we have it which I think is all the time. So pray without ceasing. Grace to you and peace. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The part of the infinite blessing that pours out from the gospel, we have grace upon grace and we have peace. Peace with God and peace with others. Listen to these passages. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. A little bit further in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
And 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because God has accomplished peace for us through Christ. We have peace with God through the, just, the work of justification on our behalf. Then we're called and we have the privilege and we have the joy of pursuing peace with one another, of reflecting God's work in our lives as we pursue peace with each other. Infinite blessing pours out from the gospel. It's amazing how much is in these introductions, isn't it? Stay on grace and peace all night. But it gets even better. Infinite blessing pours out from the gospel. But as we look at the abundance of the gospel, we see that the preeminence of Christ saturates the gospel. Look at verse 4 as Paul expands on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The preeminence of Christ saturates the Gospel. Very simple truths in these statements. Christ died for your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. Christ died for your sins. And in the wording that Paul uses here, he says He gave Himself. He voluntarily laid down His life in your place for your sins. He laid down His life for the sheep, He says in John chapter 10. But think about the, the love, the love that Christ had for, for you as a redeemed sinner, that while you were still in your sins, He gave Himself for you. He gave Himself for you. When you and I think about love and loving people, you know, it, it's easy to love people who love us, isn't it? Or it's easy to love the people we like. Or we think we love the people we like. Until we don't like them anymore. We're so fickle. Christ, while we were still dead in trespasses and sins, knowing all the sins that we would commit, knowing all the ways that we would rebel against Him, knowing every form of rebellion that our hearts would take against Him, He gave Himself for those sins. Voluntarily and substitutionary, He took our place. He took your place. That agonizing death... That shed blood, that was what you deserved. Eternity apart from God's gracious, gracious presence, eternity under God's wrath, that is what you deserved. But Christ 
on the cross took your place. And He endured the wrath of God. He propitiated the wrath of God for you. Christ died for your sins. He adds another statement, Paul does, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What's going to happen to this present evil age? Well, it's going to end in flames. As enticing as it looks, as glittering as it looks, the whole thing is going to go down in flames under the judgment of God and all those outside of Christ are going to face that. No, you've been delivered. It's like a plane that's, that's about to crash in some miraculous way, you get ejected to safety. That, that, that's the, the description here. The, 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 the destruction of this evil age is sure. And yet, Christ has plucked you out. He's delivered you from the present evil age. And he's delivered you from its ultimate end. And, and in delivering you from its ultimate end, he also delivers you from entanglement in it now. Jesus says that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We live in this world, but in Christ, the world has no hold on us. In Christ, sin has lost its power and its authority over us. And it's because Christ has rescued us, because we're in Christ. Our union with Christ gives us a love for Christ and a love for the things that are above. Paul will say in Colossians 3, to set your affections on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In a wonderful little book titled Complete in Him, Michael Barrett writes this in regard to our union with Christ in overcoming sin. Here's what he says. Here is part of victorious living. We must learn to look down on sin from the vantage point of the cross. For we indeed were crucified with Christ. The sin that is so alluring when in our face will lose its appeal from the perspective of the old rugged cross. Is it hard for you to, to think about things in terms of eternity? Does the world still hold an appeal? Well, look, look at the world from the perspective of the old rugged cross. Look at the world from the perspective that Paul puts before us here, that Christ gave himself to deliver us for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. Is, our deliverance from sins is not a deliverance to go on and live how we want to live in this world. Our deliverance is to live for Christ in this present world. To take up our cross and to follow our Savior. Christ died for your sins. Christ died to rescue you from this evil age. And what we find in the last statement in verse 4, all of this was done according to the will of our God and Father. Christ died to accomplish the will of God. And so our, our salvation 
in Christ, our salvation in Christ. It's rooted in, in the accomplishment of what Christ did as he, as he accomplished perfect righteousness that's credited to us. And as he, as he accomplished our redemption by paying for our sins on the cross. And yet, even further, that accomplishment of our redemption was according to the unchangeable will of God. When Jesus says that no one may pluck them from my hands, no one may pluck them from my hands. Christ accomplished the will of God. Your salvation was accomplished not by your will, but by God's will. What wondrous love is this? In the abundance of the gospel, we see the infinite blessing that pours from the gospel. We see the pre, that preeminence of Christ saturates the gospel. He died for our sins. He died to deliver us. And he died to accomplish the will of God in accordance with the will of God. But then look at verse 5. Regarding God the Father, Paul writes, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The third aspect of of the abundance of the gospel is that the glory of God is the goal of the gospel. The glory of God is the goal of the gospel. Many times, rightly so, we, we think of the gospel in terms of the benefits that we receive, which are wondrous, which Paul outlined. We've been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from this present evil age. But folks, the final goal of the gospel is not you. The ultimate goal of the gospel is the glory of God. And so when we look at what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and what what is applied by grace through faith, the the security that, that we enjoy in Being in Christ is rooted in the fact that all of this was accomplished not ultimately just for our good. It was accomplished ultimately for the glory of God. And again, I love the way Paul describes it in in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 6, Paul says that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places In verse 7, he goes on to say, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were saved to be trophies of the grace of God to the glory and praise of God. And so we can understand then why Paul in verse 6, starts out abruptly as he does when, when the, the gospel is at stake. If God's glory is the goal of the gospel, then perversion of the gospel is, is robbing God of his glory. It's not a simple thing of semantics. The glory of God is at stake. And so clarification of the gospel restores the right significance of the gospel to the stability of souls. Any, any approach 
to the gospel that in any way minimizes the glory of Christ is a perversion. There's so much in the basic elements of the gospel, the abundance of the gospel, but as we wrap up our meditation this evening, let's consider the evidence of the gospel in you. Are you in Christ? Do the glorious truths that Paul has proclaimed in these short verses of introduction, do they apply to you? What are the evidences of the gospel in you? Well, considering, again, the basics of the gospel, one evidence to start with is that you agree with the historical accomplishment of the gospel in Christ. Do you believe that Christ lived a righteous life and died a sinless death for the redemption and forgiveness of sins? Do you understand the significance of that and accept the historical fact of Christ? Now, that alone, just the facts, just assenting to the facts is not salvation in and of itself, but to dismiss the facts or to deny the facts, it would be impossible to be in Christ. Do you agree with the historical accomplishment in Christ? Do you accept the apostolic testimony of Christ as it clarifies the gospel, as it confronts you with sin, and as it conforms your thinking to Christ-likeness? One of the blessings of of being under the preaching of the Word of God and pursuing understanding of the Word of God is that, is that we, we grow in our understanding of Christ. And so as we learn of Christ from the Scriptures, is your constant response to the authoritative statements of the Word concerning Jesus Christ, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. That's the mark of a genuine believer, that they're, they're constantly accepting the truth of God's word by faith, accepting the apostolic testimony of Christ. And do you affirm the abundance of provision and the specificity of purpose? in the gospel, do you, do you affirm that it is finished? Do you affirm that all the provision that you need is complete in Jesus Christ and Him alone? That there is nothing that you can do to add to the gospel. There's nothing that you can do to add to your salvation. It's done, and it's done for the glory of God. Do you affirm the abundance of provision for the glory of God? Those who turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, Peter writes in 
First Peter chapter one, that they love the Lord Jesus. And those that love the Lord Jesus consistently respond in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not out of fear, not, not out of a sense that I have to conform to some kind of external standard to gain further standing, but out of love for their Lord, out of a desire to be like their Lord Jesus Christ. Well, clarifying the gospel restores stability in Christ. The basics of the gospel are that it was accomplished in Christ, announced by the apostles, and applied through faith in Christ alone. And we find the abundance of the gospel and the, and the grace and peace that are ours in Christ and the preeminence of Christ ultimately to the glory of God. And all of that was accomplished at the cross. It's so fitting, isn't it, that as Paul seeks to clarify the gospel and move people away from deviations of the gospel, that in chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Is Christ Jesus your boast? Do you boast in the cross of Christ and in the cross of Christ alone? Do you find all that you need for life and godliness in Christ and in what he has accomplished in the great salvation, delivering you from sin and delivering you from this present evil age to the glory of God the Father? Well, as we prepare to take the elements this evening, we are privileged to remember what took place at that cross according to the directions of the Lord. And the bread that we will partake of together reminds us of his broken body on the cross. His blood we remember through the cup. And so as we move toward our time of remembering Christ's sacrifice, we invite every repentant believer in Christ who trusts in the shed blood to share these elements with us. It is a joy to participate together in this remembrance. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins, we would just ask that you let the elements quietly pass you by. So I'd invite you to bow with me in, a, in meditation as the men come in preparation for our celebration of the Lord's table this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the mercy of Christ. And it is with gladness that we honor Him in this hour. We adore Christ. We love our Savior we thank you for being so generous to us, so loving to us, and setting forth Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins. May you be honored by our remembrance this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.